You may be seated. Well, I invite you to open your Bible to Mark chapter 12 as we are in the final week of our Lord's life as presented to us in the Gospel of Mark. I adore this section of Scripture as Jesus continues to come into Jerusalem, scenes that are all centered around the temple. The fig tree is on the outskirts and the way to the temple that Jesus Jesus curses as a metaphor, an illustration of the judicial abrogation of Judaism, of the Judaism of his day that was rejecting their Messiah. And as he enters the temple and then cleanses the temple, forming a whip and driving out the buyers and the sellers, he further underlines that something, someone greater than the temple is is here. And as he confronts the religious leaders of his day who are no longer leading the people towards God, but away from God in their rejection of Jesus the Messiah, challenging his authority, Jesus now offers something so rare in the Gospel of Mark. There's really only two full-length parables in the Gospel of Mark, two traditional parables. The first is in chapter 4 when we looked at the parable of the soils. There's other little parabolic moments, you know, who can bind a strong man without going into his house, but that's hardly a full-length parable. It's like an illustration. It's a sentence. Jesus is known for his parables, but Mark in his gospel really only features two of them. His focus seems to be on the rapid movement towards the cross. Uh, He gets into Jesus' teaching, especially in the coming chapters, about the future and the kingdom to come. But the parables seem to be left by Mark to the other gospel writers, except for these two, the soil parable, which is so integral to Jesus' ministry to the hearts of mankind and to our receiving of him, to what it means to follow him as a disciple. And then the parable that's in front of us today in Mark 12, verses 1 through 12, a parable that is marked by its violence and horror, a parable that is so confrontational that it makes us tremble knowing the fate that is right before our Lord and the plotting, the plotting of his demise by his enemies that's surrounding him at this moment. He speaks a parable that is direct and confrontational. So often his parables intentionally obscuring truth from his opponents. This one There is nothing to be obscured. We find out at the end of the parable that those who heard it understood exactly what he was saying. They just refused to respond to it. It's a parable that's an indictment of the religious leadership of Jesus' day, which means you can just continue to digest the tryptophene and the stuffing and the stuff that, that you had this week and, and not worry about what it has to do with you because you're not a religious leader in Israel, right? I don't think so. Though its original audience is 
on display here very clearly in the scribes and the elders and the Pharisees, those who have continually been plotting towards Jesus' arrest and death and removal from the religious scene in order to protect their power and their religiosity. You can't get out from under the significance and application and importance of a parable like this one for you and I. Though we're not the original recipients of this parable, it's a parable that lives in infamy to everyone who resists Jesus. And because it has something to say to all of us about the nature of God sending His Son, about the peril of ignoring God's Word and servants and messengers, uh, though it has something very clear to say about the danger of unbelief and the consequences of God's certain judgment, I need you to know that this parable is for you and for me. So I want to show you what it meant when Jesus first spoke it. I think it's crystal clear. It was clear to them. But I'd like to draw out of it its significance for you and I. Because this is a parable that we need to hear. A parable about tenant farmers. About a landowner. About the history of salvation unfolding before our very eyes in the gospel account of Mark and its ongoing insistence and relevance to all of us who need repentance and faith and trust in Jesus. So let's begin by reading this very timely parable of the tenants of the landowner. It's recorded in Luke and it's recorded here in Mark as his second and most significant and timely parable. Chapter 12, verse 1. And he, Jesus, began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the winepress and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. Verse 2. When the harvest season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they seized him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant. And they struck him on the head and threatened him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others. Some they beat, some they killed. He had one left. A beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him. And the inheritance will be ours. And they seized him and killed him and threw his body out of the vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? 
he will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? Psalm 118, verse 22 and 23. The stone that the builders rejected, this has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it's marvelous in our eyes. Verse 12, they were looking for a way to arrest him, but they were afraid of the crowd, for they knew that he had spoken this parable against them. So leaving him, they went away. This is the very word of the living God. What a parable. I mean, Jesus' stories are so memorable, vivid, powerful, whether it's the, the prodigal son being reunited with his father on that distant horizon. Or a parable so agricultural and earthy like the parable of the soils. Or a story that's memorable like a lost coin being found and and everyone celebrating. Whatever it was, Jesus was a master storyteller. And his stories, though intended to oftentimes conceal truth to outsiders and reveal truths to insiders, to disciples, to open the eyes of of those who were his, his followers and to obscure the truth from those on the outside. They were stories that gained interest from everyone. Jesus was a master storyteller. And in this particular story, there is such heated confrontation because the context of this parable that Jesus tells is Jesus' direct assault on the religious lifestyle and leadership of contemporary Judaism. I mean, he has just put a blockade in the temple and driven out the money changers and driven out the people trying to highlight the reality that the temple is canceled, that the Son of God has come And though they've rejected so many prophets before, they're in great danger of rejecting God's own Son. And so he forms this parable so pointed and direct and confrontational and bold and strong against his adversaries. But it's a parable that tells us the history of redemption. It's a parable that reminds every single one of us the peril of of ignoring God's Word, of assuming what God's gifts are. It's a parable that has in it so much exposure of spiritual privileges and what happens when you forget that those privileges are indeed privileges. And it's got a a response to it built right in. It's Jesus not only telling a story, but being an expository preacher because he takes the text of Psalm 118 and applies it so suitably and accurately to himself and to this moment in the history of God's dealing with the human race and their rebellion. I loved working through this passage And I have an outline that's four parts long that I don't like. 
So I am going to borrow from my friend Charles Haddon Spurgeon. He's dead. He doesn't need it because I like his outline better. And he looks at this text in, in three parts. He looks at the amazing mission, the astounding crime, and the appropriate punishment. I think that captures it better than the A.T. Duncan version. C.H. Spurgeon does it better. And so I'm going to borrow his outline just as a way to kind of hang our thoughts here. But before we get into amazing mission, astounding crime, and appropriate punishment, I want to just set this up with a wider context here. Jesus is in the temple, the temple he had just canceled, protested, made a scene in. He's returned there now several days in a row. And he's standing surrounded by his disciples and a larger crowd of worshipers. It's a, it's a holiday week, you know, their version of Thanksgiving, if, if you will. And this, is, this is Passover week. It's the, the big Jewish holiday. Everybody's coming to the temple. The streets are crowded. There's excitement in the air. It's a holiday week. And here's Jesus standing in this temple, one greater than the temple. And he immediately starts to tell the people a story about a vineyard. And the imagery to us is, I guess, quaint and interesting because, you know, you, you, you've heard of Napa or whatever. And maybe your interest in viticulture isn't high, but we can all see when you're driving down uh, Keenan to Malibu, those hills that have like the, the chalet and the, the grapevines and the terraces, or you've seen movies of Italy and, and you've seen the, the wine presses and the vats and and whether you're, you're into the, the oinos or not, hopefully not, not too much, um, you understand viticulture. You understand the, the beauty of, of vines and vine dressing, the ancient nature of that culture and their use of, of grapes and uh, the making of, of wine and, and all that, that goes into that agricultural setting. That's what's in our minds when we hear this parable What's in Israel's mind is, is beyond just the mechanics of viticulture. What's in Israel's mind when a rabbi talks about the vineyard is themselves. You see, Israel is God's vine. They always have been. That's the metaphor for God's people. From the start, even Abraham was associated with, with God's planting and throughout all of Israel's history, they had been presented by God's prophets in their own history as a special project with God as the gardener and Israel as the, the vines. That's why Jesus so often would employ these metaphors of being the vine dresser, of a vine and, and branches. This was something that was supposed to point to their own identity as the people of God. That's what this vineyard parable would have brought to their minds right away. I'll give you one example, maybe the, the biggest and most famous example, one that would have been in every single person's head that day in the temple as Jesus stood there and talked about tenant farmers and, and a vineyard, and that would be in Isaiah chapter 5. 
the very beginning of Isaiah's ministry before his commissioning in chapter 6, has a song that has so much in common with like a, a Song of Solomon kind of poetry in the Old Testament. But if you flip over to Isaiah 5 or, or punch it into your machine, it says, Isaiah 5 verse 1, it, it, it's a love song. Let me sing for my beloved. My love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it. He hewed out a wine vat in it. He looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I'll remove its hedge and it shall be devoured. I'll break down its wall and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. Verse 7. For the vineyard of Yahweh of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. This begins the prophet Isaiah's prophecy against the nation of Israel. His woes to Israel will unfold from here. But he starts with that picturesque moment of God planting a vineyard. And God does all things well. And so whatever you're picturing when you picture that scenic terraced hill and that beautiful uh, farm and orchard that surrounds it and, and all those, those grapes on the vines, when you're picturing that, this is greater than that because this is God's vineyard. And God's gracious dealings with His people are depicted as this vineyard project. And just as in Isaiah, Jesus employs the same language, the same pictures, the same examples of what a good farmer God is and with what hope God planted his people. And so as Jesus unfolds his parable in the Greek, it has all these kai's, kai, 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 kai. Maybe you know a dude named kai. It's like a surfer name. It's kind of cool. In Greek, it's just a conjunction. It means and. And that word and is peppered all through verse 1, just to display, just as in the song of the vineyard and the beloved in Isaiah 5, how much God has blessed this vineyard. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it, keeps the hogs out and the creatures out and the rodents out and the trouble out. You, you put a fence around it so it doesn't get stomped on by a, a herd of cattle. He, he puts a fence around it. He dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower. Now that would be hewn in stone. There would have been probably two presses, one that flows into another one. Extraordinary effort and expense in digging these wine presses out. You can go to the ancient world still. It's not the ancient world anymore. You can go to the Middle East and you can see these wine presses dug in. Or you can go to a place like Italy and see these ancient kind of wine presses. They're, they're big semicircles dug into rock that were used for centuries for, for pressing down the grapes and bringing out the juice and flowing it into the, the, the smaller vat. 
And so he did that. He dug the wine press. He built a tower. Uh, likely this is a watchtower, a way for someone to guard over the vineyard so no enemies could creep in to destroy it. Uh, no wild animals could run loose there. Someone is, is on guard and watching over the entire enterprise. And finally, as was the custom in the ancient world, he leased it to tenants and went to another country. And so these are tenant farmers. Uh, the normal way that this happened was uh, the owner of the land was the one who paid for the land, paid for all the work that we just described to be done, and then he would give a profit share to those who would work the land, hiring a family or a number of families who would live on the land and maybe half or 40% or whatever was agreed upon of the proceeds from the the running of the, the vineyard would have gone to those who were the workers. And the owner, though absent and though not with his hands in the soil, in this case, he's a, he's a farmer who lives in a faraway place. He's on a journey. He entrusts all of it to the competent managers and farmers, the tenants, and they do their portion, and he gets his investment back. That's how it worked in Palestine in Jesus' day. That's how it worked in the Old Testament times. This is not an unusual situation. It's a normal business transaction where the owner is going to make an investment, the employees are a part of that, and they will receive a part of those profits. And so everything depicted in verse 1 and 2 is a depiction of God's gracious dealings with His people. It's God's provision, the richness of God's grace in building this kind of vineyard. And it's a portrait of what God did in Israel, in redemptive history, in calling Abraham, in bringing that hope of of the Redeemer from, from Adam to Noah and carrying on. Uh, Moses and and the preservation of of God's people. And so God started his people with this one man, this one man named Abraham and his family. And and through Abraham and through the promise of faith and through the righteousness that he gave to Abraham, he would call him out and mark him out. and, And that would become the nation of Israel, a nation chosen not because they were better than other nations, Deuteronomy 6, but because God loved them. He chose them not because of something in in them. He chose them because he's good and he's merciful. He's a God whose choice is rooted in love. And he provided everything they could need, everything they could possibly need. He set them up for success. And then when the harvest time comes in verse 3, something happens that's shocking. Something happens that's shocking. The normal route would have been at harvest time, they go and sell the wine, they sell the grapes, they do the harvest, and they share the profits. And so it's only appropriate that the one who owns the land and the one who invested in this entire industry is going to have his share of the profits. And so he sends a servant to the tenants, verse 2, to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard, some of the produce, some of the, the, the profits. And what happens is shocking. They took him and they beat him, and they sent him away empty-handed. 
This begins a cycle of violence depicted by our Lord that goes from bad to worse. In this picture, what's happening is the history of Israel on display, the, rejections of the, the rejection of those who represented God. And you could look at the Old Testament and get tons of examples of this. Elijah was driven into the wilderness by uh, Ahab, uh, by the evil queen. Uh, he was persecuted. Isaiah, we just read his prophecy according to tradition, was sawn in half for representing God's interests. Uh, Zechariah was stoned to death right next to the altar of sacrifice in 2 Chronicles 24. Or the most recent example from the history that we have in front of us would be the beheading of John the Baptist. This is how God's people dealt with God's representatives, God's ambassadors, God's servants. The track record was they dealt harshly with them. Jeremiah is a a great example of that because he was the the lamenting one. He was the tearful prophet. And they took him and they threw him in one of these wine pits uh, or in a a water well kind of a thing and left him for dead. This harsh treatment of God's representatives was harsh treatment of God. Harsh treatment of the one who planted this vineyard, who bought this vineyard, who invested in it. This was God's design and God's plan from the start. And these workers turn to rebels and their violence is on the increase as they find the representatives that God sends and they treat them roughly, beating the first one and sending him away empty-handed. In verse 4, the second one, another servant, they beat him on the head and shame him, humiliate him. And then the third servant he sends, they kill. And then in interesting language, at the end of verse 5, it says, And so with many others, and some they beat, and some they killed. This is a history of God's prophets dealing with God's people. A vine planted. By God. For the people in order to show God's mercy and grace. When you think about the history of salvation, do you understand how merciful God has been to you? I mean, the fact that you've heard the gospel at all, the fact that you have the scriptures in front of you, the fact that you're here gathered with God's people, all of that links back to the history of God's dealing with his people, Israel. And if you can say nothing else about it, as God hopefully planted this vineyard, as he graciously gave them everything they needed, what we have here is a portrait of God's patience and his long suffering. I mean, what landowner would do this? If this was my business and they sent the first servant back empty handed and beat up, I'm coming in with my thugs. 
I, I mean, I'm, gonna, I'm the owner guy. I'm calling the cops. I'm getting the legal team and the brass knuckles. If I was the planter of the vineyard, that's mine. I'm getting my money back. This is an investment I made. We'd agreed on the terms. You don't manhandle my servants. But God's not like me. He's long-suffering. And He's patient. And He endures such blasphemy and such mistreatment and sends them another servant. I mean, whether it's Moses, the one who knew God so well, who even had to intercede on behalf of the people saying, don't blot them out, God, blot me out. The patience and long-suffering of God continues through the centuries. That's why the Old Testament is so long. They go into captivity, they come back, they go back into captivity. God brings them judgment, but God keeps giving them mercy, another opportunity to see His grace, to repent, to respond to God's patience and long-suffering. But that's not even the culmination of the mission. I mean, what's described there is the the same words in, in Hebrews 11, you know, that end of Hebrews 11 where it says, they were talking about all those people of faith. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains, in dens and caves of the earth. That's how they treated God's servants. Why? Well, they wanted the prophets for themselves. And this is just a depiction of sin, isn't it? I mean, the first sin in the garden was we want to be like God. And that's exactly what's happening in this parable. They, they want to be like God. They want to be in charge of everything. They don't want Him. They don't want His influence. They don't want his, they're not interested in His outcome, His involvement, His rules. One preacher said, what is the sum of human history but to rid the world of God? That's what's happening here. But it's not the culmination of of this story. It's not the the highest example of God's grace and God's patience and His long-suffering and His love. Because after they've killed and mistreated and killed and mistreated and beaten and sent away this line of godly men, How does God respond? And here's where we borrow Spurgeon's outline. Number one, the amazing mission. It begins in verse 6. He had still one other, a beloved son. That phrase, beloved son, occurs in Mark two other places. First, at Jesus' baptism. When God's voice from heaven says, This is my beloved Son in whom I love. The second time it occurs is in that theophany, that glorious theophany at the Mount of Transfiguration when Jesus at the mountaintop and Moses and Elijah are there and the disciples, the three disciples are with Him and they witness it and God's voice interrupts Peter and says, This is my beloved Son. Listen to Him. Jesus intentionally using that language of His 
close and intimate relationship with God as God's Son, as a second member of the Trinity. He says he had one other to send. This speaks of the finality of God's mission. That there isn't another Jesus coming. There aren't another line of prophets coming. Jesus came as a final word from God. And if you don't respond to Him, there is no more hope for you. And so here He is in the moment, the very week of His sin-bearing, the very week of of His shameful treatment, of His own being beat on the head. And God has sent Jesus Not another servant, not a prophet. This is Hebrews chapter 1. He's spoken in various ways at various times, but now he has spoken through his own son. And God knew exactly what was going to happen. And that's why it's such an amazing mission. He still had one other, a beloved son, and he sent him to them saying, they will respect my son. But the tenants saw their opportunity and they said, this is the heir, come let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. And that's the second point, that's the astounding crime. The astounding crime began with the rejection and death of God's prophets. The astounding crime became the highest possible offense as they take and treat roughly and abuse and scorn and humiliate and kill and dump the body of God's Son outside of the vineyard, outside of the city. That's where Jesus would be killed in mere days. That's the height of our sinful rebellion. This story isn't only about the leaders of Israel and their plot to have Jesus killed. This story is a story about us. Every single hard-hearted sinner who stands in opposition to God because we love our sin and we refuse to follow and obey Jesus. Friend, if you're here today, young college student, if you're here today and your life is marked by spiritual indifference, by folly, by an addiction to your sin and your own stupidity, if you cannot break yourself free from your own lust, I want you to see yourself as one of these criminals because that's who we are. We're sinners by nature and by choice. And the reason you, I I don't know the reason you come here if, if you're not interested in spiritual things, to meet a girl, to satisfy your overbearing parents. I have no idea. But if you're not here to hear from God and submit to His Word, you're in this story too. Every one of us has culpability for the death of Jesus. He died for sinners like us. In our place, condemned, He stood. Our sin, our rebellion, our high crimes against God are depicted here as we plot. This is the heir. Come let us kill Him and the inheritance will be ours. We do what we want. We think what we want. We think God doesn't care. We think there's no regard for consequences. We don't acknowledge the rights that God has over us as as the landowner, as our creator, that we belong to him. And I'm here to tell you something. God isn't like your parents. You can fool your parents. You can fool the people who look at your life right now. But you can't fool God. You can hide all kinds of things from all kinds of people, but you can't hide anything from God. 
And to come from a place of unbelievable privilege to hear the gospel to... I mean, some of you grew up singing Bible songs. The little cute little kids singing Bible songs and you still refuse to submit to Christ. You singing about Jesus since you were a baby. And it's a reminder that when God judges you, he'd be very fair to do so. Because you, like these tenant farmers, think you can get rid of Jesus. You think you can live your life however you want and throw his body over the wall. But God knew what would happen to his son. His beloved son who is also the eternal God. And so they do the worst to Jesus. And they beat him and they shame him and they mock him and they kill him and they throw his body aside. God's amazing mission is not stopped by this. In fact, this is part of God's plan. Their astounding crime all plays into this amazing mission. And then this text closes with the, what Spurgeon called the appropriate punishment. And I think the takeaways are right here at the end of this, these verses. The tenants plot to kill Jesus just as the religious leaders were plotting his death as he spoke. They take him, they kill him, they throw him out of the vineyard. And they think they can get rid of Jesus. Verse 9. What will the owner of the vineyard do? If you are without Christ in your life, I hope you have a sleepless night tonight. And I hope one question rattles around in your head. What will the owner of the vineyard do? You want to be obedient to your lusts? You want to live your own way? You want to be a rebel without a cause? What will the owner of the vineyard do? Because you don't belong to yourself. You won't ultimately answer to yourself. You'll ultimately answer to God. And His justice, His judgment will be perfect. It will be suitable. It will be righteous. And it will be just. What will the owner of the vineyard do? The owner tells us, He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this Scripture? And then Jesus pulls a little piece out of Psalm 118. It's, a, it's a, like a coronation song. It's, a, it's an ascending song. It's a, a priest and people respond to each other's song as they talk about the glory of the king. But there's this prophetic moment in the song that says, Psalm 118, composed a thousand years before this, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. In more modern versions of construction, the cornerstone would have been that, that rock that was put in that the rest of the building was built on. In Jesus' time, cornerstones could be that. They could also be the top stone of an arch. That's likely what's being referenced here. It's the finishing point. Without it, nothing will be held together. That cornerstone being depicted here is one that the builders would need to look at and assess to make sure that it would be just right. But those who thought the vineyard belonged to them said, this is not the stone for us. We reject Jesus. We don't believe Him. We don't see Him as Messiah. We will ultimately assess and reject God's Messiah and 
the one that they reject becomes the capstone on their judgment. In verse 11, quoting Psalm 118, seems to ask a question here. This was the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. Hmm. What does that mean? How is the death of God's beloved Son marvelous in our eyes? Well, because the crimes that we've committed against Him are horrific, the cross is horrific. But in another sense, Jesus isn't entering into this thing as a victim, but as a victor. And so at the cross, we find not just the horrific crimes of sinners like us on display that make the death of Jesus necessary. At the cross, we find something marvelous, something wondrous, something remarkable, because in it we find salvation. Salvation for those who would believe and accept the mercy and grace of God and judgment for those who don't. And that's why the walk away on this verse, verse 12, is those leaders who know exactly what Jesus is talking about and they look to arrest him and put him to death. The cross is truly horrific and truly wonderful. Spurgeon in this sermon speaking of the mistreatment of the servant, the continual beatings and rejection of God's servant and the final rejection and death of of his son. Spurgeon said, if you reject him, he answers you with tears. If you wound him, he bleeds out cleansing. If you kill him, He dies to redeem. If you bury Him, He rises again to bring resurrection. Jesus is love made manifest. Or, He'll be that capstone on God's righteous judgment of your life. This message today isn't for religious leaders in ancient Israel. It's a message for every single one of you. What will you do with the Son of God who came to save you from the wrath of God which you rightly deserve. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Leave your sin and your foolishness behind and embrace the Savior. And in Him you'll find love and forgiveness and freedom and peace and joy. And that judgment that you deserve will be paid by Him. Father, thank You for Jesus and the glorious Gospel Help us to be persuaded of this. Help us to see the the coming triumphant judgment of God in that psalm depiction. As Jesus stood there in the temple and spoke such prophetic and blunt and powerful words, I pray that same sense of prophecy and bluntness, directness, would be towards the, the people gathered here today. Particularly, God, will you convict of sin and foolishness? Will you convict of lust and hatred and rebellion? And will you take that heart of stone present in many here today and bring about your saving work, the new birth, a heart of flesh put in, repentance, 
than faith. God, we know you can, and that's why we ask. That cornerstone, God, you say in Luke 20, everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. The warning's been set out today. Those who reject Christ will be crushed by that divine stone. So Father, may they cry out to You for mercy and may those of us who've experienced Your kindness, not because of anything in us, only because of Your mercy, may we triumph in the finality of Your salvation and Your judgment. Help us to urge others to see the way that Christ has made. In His name, amen.